to the Florida Baptist Church podcast. God has placed great value on the lives of the unborn. Scripture tells us that nothing is more valuable than a human soul. Let's join Pastor Scott Roberson as he begins his sermon in the Sanctity of Life. Earlier this month, I was thinking about today, and I was thinking about how it's Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and by the way, if you don't, if that terminology is unfamiliar to you, what we mean when we say life, human life has sanctity is we mean human life is unique, and it's special, and it's worth defending and protecting because human life, human beings are made in the image of God, and because we bear the image of God, uh, life, human life is sacred. That's what that means, and I was thinking about how human life is deserving honor and protection. Uh, And I thought that today I would not talk about abortion. And uh, my reason for that was that I've talked about it many times, uh, several times. And I thought, well, maybe I'll talk about something else related to human sanctity, like physician-assisted suicide or embryonic stem cell research or some of these other issues related to human sanctity. Um, But then I thought of a couple things. And the first thing I thought of was that other violations of human sanctity don't even come close to comparing to the massive injustice uh, that abortion is. Uh, Since 1973, when the Supreme Court struck down essentially every legal protection for human life in the womb, uh, more than 50 million abortions have taken place in the U.S. Worldwide, there's over 100,000 abortions performed um, every day. More than 3,000 every day in the United States. And every abortion, regardless of when it's performed... Uh, takes the life of an innocent human being. That, that's not a matter of debate. It's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of, of human development, science, not, not to mention biblical teaching. The injustice of it is, is simply staggering. But the other thing I thought was this. This massive injustice takes place virtually unnoticed. Because it's legal, because it's considered a private matter, uh, and because it's mostly ignored by the media, most of us can go through most of our lives without seeing or hearing about this massive injustice. Now, in contrast to that, I just want you to think for a minute about that terrible shooting that happened in Tucson a few weeks ago. Now, that received almost continuous media coverage for many days, and understandably so. It was, a, it was a horrific thing because a man shot 20 legally innocent people. Uh, he killed six of them. And what, what was especially horrific was that one of the slain, one of those who lost her life, was a child, nine-year-old Christina Taylor Green. And people were shocked and incensed and outraged because we know there is no justification for taking the life of a child who did absolutely nothing deserving of death. Killing her was 
and injustice. Killing her was an assault on human sanctity. It was wrong to do that, and we were horrified. But I want you to think about the double standard. Because when a child who is already born is callously killed, our nation is outraged. But when a child who is unborn is callously killed, our nation pays no attention. And if you want another example of it, I mean, this horrific story that just came out of Philadelphia about the abortionist who was now facing murder charges because he would, I'll spare you the details, but he would kill babies after delivering them. And the irony is, if he had done the exact same thing to the baby in the womb, if that's what the mother wanted, it would have been completely legal and it never would have made the news. So when a born child is killed, the nation's outraged. When an unborn child is killed, the nation pays no attention. And, of course, the question for us is, what, what about us? What about us? What about us who proclaim the love and the truth of Jesus Christ, who are called to love the image of God, who are called to be salt and light in our world? Uh, I know I can easily forget. It's so easy to forget. It's so easy to just go about all my other stuff and and not even think about it because it's not visible. It's not there to see. And that's why I am going to talk about abortion today because I need to remember and you need to remember that this massive injustice is still taking place every day and we need to respond. So I say that knowing full well that there are women listening to my voice who have had abortions. I know that saying this, that there are men listening to my voice who have encouraged women to have abortions, either girlfriends or wives or daughters. I know that it's a painful topic. It's an emotional topic. But the grace of Jesus Christ is the answer for such pain. And the grace of Jesus Christ compels us to reach out and make a difference even when it's not comfortable. He hasn't called us to be comfortable. And if you are here and you are suffering the scars of abortion, God wants you to be free. He loves you. He wants you to experience forgiveness. He wants you to experience freedom. Bring your guilt, your pain to Jesus He will forgive you. He will set you on the path of healing. He wants you to be free to help others. He wants you to be free to save lives. He wants you to be free to make a difference in this world for his name. What I want to do today is I want to give you four biblical reasons to do something about abortion. These are not reasons to be against abortion. Okay? Lots of people are against abortion. In fact, one of the most common things you hear people say who label themselves as pro-choice is, well, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I want other people to have the right to choose that. Um, The reason for being against abortion is very simple, very straightforward. Uh, If you don't know what it is, I'm going to show just a short video. Uh, You'll see it. 
It's not graphic. If you have children here and you're concerned about that, there's nothing in it that's graphic. But it's just a simple presentation of why being against abortion is the right view. Okay, so the reason for being against abortion is that every abortion kills an innocent human being made in the image of God. And when I say innocent human being, I know if, you know, if, you, if you're good in theology, you, you'll maybe think, well, nobody's innocent before God. We're all sinners. And that's true. That's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about not our position before God. We're talking about our position as a society before one another, is there's a difference between being legally innocent and being legally convicted of a capital crime. That's the difference. Every abortion kills an innocent human being, legally innocent, without due process of law, without having done anything deserving death. But being against abortion is not the same thing as doing something about it. And that's what I want to talk about. So here are four biblical reasons for doing something. I want to acknowledge my debt uh, for these insights to Michael Spielman, who is the founder of the Abort73.com website, which I highly recommend. First reason for doing something is that God commands us to care for orphans. James chapter 1, verse 27 is the key passage here. James says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, James says this right after talking about the necessity of being doers of the word, not hearers only. It's easy to be a hearer of the word, to believe it or to say we believe it and delude ourselves that we do believe it when we do nothing about it. And then he talks about caring for widows and orphans. And then he goes on later, the next chapter, he he talks about not neglecting the poor, not neglecting the hungry. And then in chapter 5, he encourages elders to pray for the sick. And so it's very clear that James believes that God's people should care for people in need. Why then, when he is defining pure and faultless religion, why does he single out orphans and widows in particular? Why them? Why is that the mark of a genuine faith in God? Well, it's because of the situation of orphans and widows, particularly in the ancient world, the time James wrote this, orphans and widows were the very definition of vulnerability. They were almost totally helpless to provide for themselves, and society as a whole did nothing to help them. And so if God's people did not intervene, they would most likely not survive. And so it is today with abortion-vulnerable children. Our society as a whole offers them no protection. So if God's people don't 
intervene and try to make a difference, then most likely they will not survive. Uh, John Piper makes the point that actually abortion-threatened children are worse off than orphans because orphans have parents who have died or who have abandoned them, while abortion-vulnerable children have parents who want them dead and have the power to bring that about. All of which means that if true religion cares for orphans because they are helpless and in danger, then true religion must care for children threatened by abortion. Reason number one to do something. Reason number two, when innocent people are threatened, there's no excuse for not acting. Now, let's, let's be honest. The price of engagement on this issue is high. It's much higher, for example, than feeding and clothing orphans. Because if you do that, you will be applauded. You will be honored. If you attempt to intervene on behalf of children threatened by abortion, you will not be applauded. You will be scorned. You will be ridiculed. You will be labeled as a hateful intolerant person. So the price of engagement is much higher. Does God actually expect us to get involved? Look at Proverbs 24, 11, and 12. Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he's done? It's interesting how often the Bible says that God's judgment is ultimately based on what we do. Because we teach very strongly that what makes a person right with God is not what they do, but whether or not they receive what Jesus did for us and put our faith in him. We're saved by faith, not by works. Why does the Bible always keep saying God will repay each according to his done. It's because what we do proves what we really believe. We can say we believe all kinds of things, but it's what we do that shows what we really believe. And interesting here, I mean, you know, like, does this proverb talking about abortion? Well, no, not specifically. But what specific injustice is being talked about is not mentioned. It's not defined. This is a general guideline for what God's people are to do in the face of violent injustice. If innocent people are in danger of losing their lives, people who know God are supposed to try to come to their rescue. And if you think the word slaughter is too strong for abortion, remember that thousands of innocent human beings lose their lives every single day, and in the vast majority of cases, their tiny bodies are literally torn to pieces. That's what happens. Number three, reason for doing something. Those who fear God do not stand by while babies are being killed. Exodus chapter 1, verse 17 through 21, gives us a very real life example of what it looks like to do Proverbs 24. To rescue those staggering towards slaughter. Uh, this story happens at a time 
when the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt, if you've seen the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt or any of those, um, you, know, you know the story. They're, in, they're enslaved in Egypt, and this is before the birth of Moses. And the Egyptian leaders, the leaders of Egypt, were very concerned because the Israelites were multiplying and becoming very numerous. And they were worried that this was going to lead to an uprising and a revolt, and they were worried about what would happen to their nation. So Pharaoh gave a command, the king of Egypt gave a command that every newborn Hebrew baby be put to death. And he ordered the Hebrew midwives, you know, the Old Testament equivalent of obstetricians, the ones who attended the Jewish women at birth, he ordered them to carry out his command to kill the babies. Exodus 1.17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. Fearing God. Uh, often misunderstood, it doesn't mean being afraid of God. It doesn't mean not wanting to get close to God. What it means is respecting God enough to hate what he hates. That's what it means to fear God. Uh, another verse says the, to fear God is to hate evil. That's what it means. So the midwives feared God, did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? They said, the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and gave birth before the midwives arrived. Is that a lie? I don't know. Sounds like it could be. Is God blessing a lie? That's another question. But look what he does. He's blessing what they did. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Because the midwives feared God, they did not cooperate with putting those babies to death. They opposed it. We could even say they disobeyed the law. And God was pleased. Some laws are unjust. Just because something's legal doesn't make it right. Number four, love acts to help people in need regardless of who they are. Love acts to help people in need regardless of who they are. It's easy to be very selective in our love, isn't it? is for me. So one day a lawyer comes up to Jesus and he's actually out to try to trick him. That happened a lot. And so he asks a question. Rabbi, what must I do to uh, have eternal life? What must I do to be acceptable to God? And Jesus answers, he, he replies with a question, which he did a lot. And he said, well, what's written in the law? What has God said? In other words. 
And the lawyer correctly answers. He sums up the law by saying, the law says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Great answer. A plus. Jesus replies, do this and you will live. But the lawyer asks another question because he's not happy with that answer. But who's my neighbor? Come on, Jesus. Help me out here. Define neighbor, would you? Because I don't want to have to love everybody. Give me the minimum here. (laughs) Who do I absolutely have to love in order to meet God's standard? And Jesus, he's going to flip this thing completely on his head and not say, you know, who's your neighbor? He's going to turn around and say, what does it mean to be a neighbor? And so he tells a story that we call the Good Samaritan. And the story, basically this, I'm not going to read it, but it tells the story of an Israelite going to Jericho, and on the way he gets attacked, he gets robbed, he gets beaten, and he's left for dead on the side of the road. And then along the the road later come two men, two fellow Israelites. One's a priest, one's a Levite. These are guys who worked in the temple, and they were considered the most spiritually-minded people of the day. And they saw him, and they went to the other side of the road and kept walking. And then along comes a Samaritan, uh, whom the Jews despised. They were not friends. They were not even acquaintances. Uh, They didn't like each other. And the Samaritan sees this Israelite, and he goes, and at great cost to himself, both in time and money, he helps the man. Now, I would guess that both the uh, priest and the Levite felt horrible about what they saw. I would guess that they shook their heads at the injustice of what had happened to this poor man. And I'm sure they had all kinds of reasons why they couldn't get involved. I mean, they were on their way to do something important. They were on their way to do God's work, man. They had stuff to do. They couldn't be late. Uh... They couldn't risk touching a dead body because that would make them ceremonially unclean and then they couldn't perform their duties in the temple for a season. So they had reasons, they had justifications, and they were wrong. Dead wrong. And they were not wrong for feeling the wrong way, they were wrong for acting the wrong way. They did Nothing. They did not do what they should have done. I wish God would define sin simply in terms of doing something you weren't supposed to do. It's a lot more uncomfortable when he defines it in terms of not doing what you should do. But that's what Jesus does. And he's telling us here that having the right feelings for someone in genuine need when you can actually do something. Now, I know there's times when there's needs, you know, it may not be a genuine need. Maybe it's a con. Or it may be, it is a genuine need, but there's nothing you can do. But that's not the situation here, and that's not the situation we often face. There is a genuine need. We can do something. We choose not to, and Jesus says, that's not love. He defines neighbor so broadly that it is impossible for us to justify doing nothing 
about the plight of abortion-vulnerable children because we can do something, and we need to act. So far as I can tell, now if you disagree with me, uh, you know, please come up and talk to me and, and help me see why I'm wrong. But as far as I can tell, abortion is the single greatest injustice taking place in our nation today. It's not the only injustice, but it is the biggest. Because it's legal and it's hidden, as I said before. And because it's such a divisive issue, because it's such an uncomfortable issue, it's so easy to look the other way. But as I said, God hasn't called us to be comfortable. If he had called me to be comfortable, I wouldn't even be talking about this. It's easy to look the other way. But I want you to think about this. What if what, if what happened to Christina Taylor Green happened 3,000 times a day, every day in our country? What if 3,000 innocent children were being put to death every day because their parents didn't want them or because they were inconvenient or because they were potentially disabled or they were disabled and, and we knew about it and it was happening Every day, 3,000 times a day, a picture like Christina Taylor Green on the news. 3,000 times a day. What would we do? Would we do anything? Of course we would. We would say, this is wrong. Something's got to be done. This has got to stop. Something's got to change. What would we do? What would we do? Would we pray? Yes, we'd pray. We'd pray that this massive injustice would become, you know, not not merely illegal, but unthinkable. Think about the, the situation of slavery and how slavery used to be legal, and now it's unthinkable. You never hear anybody say, well, I'm personally opposed to slavery, but I don't want to interfere with the right of somebody else to choose to own a slave. Nobody would say that. It's unthinkable. Why don't we pray that that abortion becomes that unthinkable? And pray regularly and consistently. See, that's what's hard to do because, you know, time will go by and this will go out of sight, out of mind. What do I need to do? I I need to make a note. I need to do something to remember to pray passionately and regularly for this. Would we give... Would we give financially to help pregnancy resource centers like Options 360 here in Clark County to continue to be able to provide ultrasounds and and baby clothes and support for women and counseling so that more and more women could choose life? And you say, you know, the irony of what's supposedly pro choice is that most women who abort feel they have no choice. That's true. They feel pressured by a family member, by a husband, by a boyfriend, or their situation that they face, they just have no choice. They have to do this. We need to give them a choice. Would we speak out against the injustice? Would we wear provocative T-shirts like I'm wearing today? Would we speak out even though we run the great risk of being thought a lunatic or hateful or however we choose to be labeled, anti-choice, I don't know. Would we refuse to vote for politicians who refuse to protect life? 
Now, people will get upset about this and say, well, you can't be a single-issue voter. Yeah, I agree on a lot of things. I agree. I think it's really foolish to make you know, it all about one thing if that thing is not an issue of moral absolute. But this is different. You know, I wouldn't vote for a guy who was right on just about everything but got up and say, well, I personally don't beat my wife, but I, I'm not going to take a stand against other people beating their wives. Yeah, good luck getting elected, pal. There are some issues for which if you refuse to defend human life, slavery, wife beating, child molestation, abortion, if someone refuses to take a stand for life, should they really be in office? What would we do? Would we vote for such a person? Would we encourage pregnant women who are not ready to be moms? Would we encourage them and love them and do what we can to help them give their babies life and consider giving their baby a good home through adoption, even though it's difficult? I have to tell you, I'm personally shocked. I'm adopted, okay? I'm a child of adoption. And I'm personally shocked how when adoption is mentioned, people will freak out and say, you can't ask a woman to do that. That's too hard. That's too difficult. Actually, I think I can. I think I have a legitimate basis for saying that because if my birth mother had not chosen adoption, I wouldn't be here. Was it hard for my birth mother? I bet it was. I bet it really was. Was it worth it? I think so. (laughs) Because my parents are great parents. And they have loved me as if I came from their own bodies. I think my birth mother loved me more. Because she chose to do what was best for me. Was it hard? I'm sure it was. Was it better than killing an unborn baby? Why would we encourage women to do something that is potentially going to haunt them and scar them for the rest of their lives? And I'm not making that up. That's not hyperbole. That's not emotional rhetoric. That's what happens. What would we do? That's the question. What would we do? What would we do? Let's do it. Now, I just found out about something. Uh, The message was already prepared. The slides were done. The inserts were done. And I just found out about this. So I'm just going to tell you about it. And you're going to need to write it down here in Washington State. And I don't get up and talk politics. You know that. I don't do that. We don't endorse candidates. And we don't take positions on political issues unless it's a matter of biblical right and wrong. And that's, I think, what's at stake here. There's a bill coming before the Washington State Assembly, HB 1366. And on Monday, there's a hearing about it, Monday afternoon at 1.30, up in Olympia. And the intent of this law is to close, or to make it possible to close, uh, pregnancy resource centers like Options 360. Because the, the abortion providers don't want any competition, They will talk about it in terms we don't want people being misled by these phony abortion clinics. They're not phony abortion clinics. Most of them say right up front, we don't provide abortions or provide abortion referrals. 
but they're there to help women who want that help and to provide ultrasounds and counseling and encouragement. And there's no government funding at stake because it's all funded by volunteers, people in the community, churches, unlike Planned Parenthood, which receives a great deal of funding from government agencies. And uh, the abortion providers want to shut them down. So there you go. Hearing on Monday, what could you do? Well, you could pray. Let's pray about it. Uh, that's the main thing we can do. You could contact your uh, state assemblyman, state senator. It'll, there's a Senate version of it also. Uh, maybe if you have time on Monday afternoon, if you don't have anything you, else that you have to do, you know, you go to Olympia and be at the hearing. I don't know. There's something. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, uh, doing something is hard. And we're only going to do it if we believe it is important to you uh, and therefore should be important to us. So, Lord, will you please work in our hearts, help us think right, help us feel right, and then help us do right um, because we want to honor you. We want to love people. May that be our spirit. May that be our attitude. May it not be about condemning or threatening or being angry in a sense of hateful actions. May it be love. Hating the evil, but but loving the people. And uh, Lord, help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Flying Up at the Church podcast. For more resources, visit our website at philida.org.